Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. I hope and trust that you are all well. Special announcement, from here on out, every video will end with only 15 minutes of rain, leaving you with more narration and less of the rain at the end of every video. I would suggest with listening to the stories for sleep time that you select the rain sound playlist and they will continue to play in the order from newest to oldest, giving you more narration and less rain for those that fall asleep to my voice. Of course, if you enjoy what you are hearing down below in the description box, you can find the Buy Me A Coffee link, as that does help me in the channel, as well if you would like to become a member of Back to Ashes. It is only $1.99 a month. All the perks and everything that comes with it can also be found in the description below. Now, it is time to go back to ashes. For when we arise from the ashes, we are a bigger, brighter, stronger, and happier person in the morning. Sit back, relax. Kick back, grab a snack, or tuck in and get warm and prepare for this dose of vocal melatonin entitled Even More True Backwoods Stories. Disclaimer, the first four stories are independent stories, the fifth story is in two parts, and the last story is in four parts. I will announce the parts as I read. Also, just as soon as this intro is finished, an ad will play. I will read the first story, another ad will play, and there will be no more ads played within the video. A couple weeks ago, my dad shared the below. My dad is about as down to earth and grounded as they get. Him, his then high school girlfriend, his best friend with girlfriend in tow, and another male friend would drive out to the back roads. The roads we're talking about are pretty desolate. Could go through the night without seeing another car. They would randomly stop put on some tunes, and do what teens do. This is the late 70s as reference. One night, they stopped and were hanging out. When in the field about 500 yards away, a total of five lights shone spaced about 50 yards from each other and roughly 20 feet off the ground. My dad said they all just stared because the lights were so brilliantly bright, but really did not hurt the eyes. Roughly 15 seconds after being on, they went off without a sound. They all were discussing what it was when once again the lights came on again. This time, they noticed three people, standing about 50 yards in front of the lights. Just standing no movement. The lights turned back off. My dad said they were not scared since it seemed so far away from them. The lights come back on. The initial three people had moved up roughly 50 yards, and there is now five more behind them, 50 yards away. Like bowling pin arrangement, the lights flicked back off. At this point, while still kind of watching, my dad and his friends are packing up to nope out of there. The lights come back on, and there is the initial eight people still in the same position. But now, one single person about 200 yards away, right in the middle of the light spectrum. That was it. They floored it out of there. 
no one looked back, and it was never spoken of amongst the friends. My dad said if it were some sort of production to spook five high schoolers, it was well accomplished. All this mattered within a three to five minute period of time, as reference. I had to ask, did you see the lights for a fourth time while driving away? He said they were all so shook up, they would not have even noticed and did not want to see them ever again. I lived in southern Delaware, about 13 years in a pretty woodsy area. It was about 15 minutes to the nearest small town and 40 to the nearest small city. My house was surrounded by a nature preserve that allowed hunting by special permit, and I used to play in the woods for hours as a kid. Part of the nature preserve, about a half of a mile away, had a vehicle trail you could go on with your truck, ATV, etc., and had a few abandoned fields. Occasionally, I'd walk up there myself just to enjoy nature. One of my favorite areas was an old farming field with a tiny pond surrounded by pine forest. This area is blocked off by large pieces of concrete fence and is not accessible by vehicle. This is important. I recently revisited the area after not exploring it for three to four years and brought my fiancé with me. I took her to the area mentioned above as I used to find cool rocks and sometimes animal bones to take home since I'm into vulture culture and wanted to show her my favorite childhood quiet area. We started looking for bones and hay. We found some remains of a doe and more and another. Altogether, there were the skeletons of around five deer, some bucks, some does. Now, while hunting is allowed in parts of the preserve, it is not in this area. Also, when you hunt, you're required to field dress, meaning remove organs, in the area of death and take the rest of the carcass with you as most hunters around there hunt for food. These were not full skeletons, just bits and pieces. We found three partial skulls, so it wasn't just trophy hunters taking back a buck or two for a mount, and the remains were all in about a six-foot radius. If it was hunters... They'd have to take the entire carcass with them by walking the mile back to the main trail. Clean and butcher the deer elsewhere. Then return and carry the butchered remains back to the area and dump it in one specific point. And also not dump the entire skeleton. We're a bit freaked out at this point and then realize that the forest is almost entirely quiet except a few quail calls. As a kid, I used to hear train whistles in the area. 
There are no trains in the area except some cargo rails that ran three to four times a year, about 15 miles away, and remembered the silence that came after those calls. We're thoroughly creeped out by this weird bone area and the unusual quiet. So we speed walked back to the vehicle trail, got in my car, and drove back to my family's house. We don't plan on going back. I'm back with another creepy Uinta Basin middle of nowhere story. When I was around 15, me and my friends were driving around, going to all the haunted places around the basin. It was getting close to Halloween, so as it is tradition, we were all trying to scare each other. First, we went to a place called the Haunted Woods. This is an actual business, not a place in the woods. Then, we went to an abandoned hotel near the Ute Reservation. Nothing of significance happened there. We didn't see or hear anything, and we were just goofing around and having fun. Then, the driver says we were going to Skinwalker Ranch. I had never heard of Skinwalker Ranch, but I had heard plenty of stories of skinwalkers. I was intrigued at first, but as we dropped down the hill back behind the property, a feeling of total dread settled on me like a heavy blanket. Everyone in the car got more and more quiet, like they were feeling the heaviness too. I don't think we should go here. I spoke softly. Oh, we're going, the driver announced. There's no moon tonight and no flashlights allowed, he continued. I will just stay in the truck then. I have a really bad feeling and I don't want to go. I spoke again. You aren't staying in my truck alone. Now get out, he said rudely. I got out of the truck and looked over at my best friend. Her face is white and her eyes were wide and round, and I knew she felt the same way that I did. We shouldn't be here. The driver of the truck said that this was the back end of a huge ranch. I wouldn't have believed him that this was really Skinwalker Ranch if I didn't feel that it was in every nerve ending of my body. He walked over to an ancient post and pole fence, undid the loop of wire holding up a small gate, and laid it on the ground. There was an overgrown two-track road leading up into the darkness, and we followed as he led us up it. The horrible feeling of dread was almost overwhelming and I felt like I was going to be sick. I wanted to go running back to the truck, but had a deep fear that something would pounce the moment I left the safety of the group. We weren't laughing and joking here. That heaviness was weighing on all of us, and we walked silently through the dark. As we walked, 
I tried to keep my eyes on my feet, but I would occasionally glance to either side of the two-track road. Each time I did, I would see a huge black mass out in the tall grass. I told myself it was just a cow, but each time I looked, it was in the same spot off to the left, following our journey to the old homestead. Finally, the driver and leader of our foolish expedition stopped and said that we were almost to the old homestead, that we needed to stay quiet in case the owners were around. As he turned to start walking again, a growl leapt from the darkness, and he stopped and took a step back. He wasn't our fearless leader anymore. His voice shook as he told us it was time to head back to the truck. We walked a little ways back, and then one of our groups said they needed to use the bathroom. We stopped by a small stream running along the south end of the property. I was smoking and talking to one of my friends about how relieved I was that we were leaving. I glanced down at the stream at the same time my friend did. Just in time to see a black figure emerging from the water. It was no cow. It was not a coyote. It looked like a too skinny and too tall of a man. We both screamed and ran back to the road. That was the last straw for everyone, and we all ran the entire way back to the truck. Now I know this is eerie and kind of uneventful. Have no fear. My story isn't over just yet. A few months later, this adventure had slowly left my mind. I had started to convince myself that the figures in the darkness were just cows, and that it probably was just the dark running water playing tricks on my eyes, making me see things emerging from the water that weren't really there. My best friend had come over to my house to sit outside, bullshit, and smoke cigarettes. We did this pretty frequently. Like I said in my last story, we lived in the middle of nowhere, so dumb things like this were about as much fun as we could have. So, we are sitting in her car just across the road from my house. Her car is pointed towards the town park, which was just about a block away from my house. There are no other houses on the way to the park. So with the street lamps on at the park, you can basically see everything up there. Oh look, a deer, my friend says suddenly. I could see a set of glowing eyes on the very far end of the park. Oh yep, there it is, I reply. We watch as it slowly walks towards the center of the park. In this spot is a huge metal slide and jungle gym thing that is probably 10 to 12 feet tall. As the deer is walking, I notice that for some reason I can't make out any features of the deer. 
it seems to always be just out of reach of the street lamps. They are dotted throughout the park. The deer is right next to the slide when suddenly it stands up. The eyes that we were watching are suddenly even with the platform on the slide, which would make this deer 10 to 12 feet tall. Then it starts to walk standing on its hind legs. Me and my friend both started panicking. What the F is it? That's not a deer! We keep watching this extremely tall creature cross the park when my friend decided we're driving up there. She locks the doors and we head towards the park. When we were almost there, the eyes had crossed the street and went into the neighborhood and across from the park. By the time we got there, whatever it was had vanished. Another few months go by. The event had definitely rattled us, and there was no convincing ourselves that it was a deer. Deer do not walk on their hind legs, and they are not ten feet tall. One night, I am at the same friend's house. This friend lives smack dab in the middle of huge farmland. All around her were pastures. It was very peaceful most of the time. We had spent the night watching movies and hanging out. I went and started my car, and we were smoking together on her porch before I left. We were just chatting when suddenly her eyes leave my face and look behind me, and her eyes grow wide. I turned to look and see two glowing red eyes just past the fence into her neighbor's pasture. What the F is that? I managed to squeak out. I don't know, she whispers back. The eyes remained fixed on us for about 30 seconds, then turned to the left, blinked, and vanished. We both ran back in the house. I didn't dare go home for another 45 minutes. If my car hadn't been already started, I probably wouldn't have left it all. A couple of years after these events, I was speaking with a Ute tribal member that I worked with, and she said something that gives me goosebumps to this day. She said... It isn't what's on the ranch that you should be afraid of. It's what follows you when you leave. I am convinced that something followed us from Skinwalker Ranch, and those terrifying events was something warning us to never go back. I never did, and I never will. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. 
book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Story number one. I used to work on the North Slope of Alaska. Here are one of my stories. I used to work on the North Slope of Alaska in the oil industry. The work we were doing required us to travel far out into the Alaska Petroleum Reserve, which is basically just untamed tundra, wilderness for hundreds of miles. The oil companies would build these long ice roads in the winter that would lead to exploration drilling pads. Our job was to go out after they finished the initial drilling and test rock formations for their oil-producing qualities. It was mid-January. The sun hadn't quite come up yet. And when I say the sun hadn't quite come up, I mean in almost a month and a half. Polar nights are intense. The particular website we were traveling to was 60 miles west of Alpine, Texas, deep in the wilderness. Our job took a week, but we finished and were headed back to camp to finish our hitch and go home. At the beginning and end of the ice roads are guard shacks that you have to check in and out of for safety. No cell reception and radios work, only up to a distance. If you don't check in or out in a set time, they come looking for you to ensure you're not a popsicle. It was about four in the morning. Not that it mattered in the land of endless night, and we were halfway across the ice road. Travel was slow as the speed limit on the roads is only 25 miles per hour. When something appeared on the road in our headlights. It was a man. In jeans, sneakers, and a hoodie jacket. Walking down an ice road in wilderness tundra at 4 a.m. And it was negative 20 degrees outside. It's not unusual for the local Inuit people to be out this far hunting. Maybe his snowmobile broke down and he's trying to get back to the guard shack. It seemed plausible. He didn't acknowledge us as our trucks rolled up next to him. He just kept shuffling forward. He didn't seem cold. His clothing while totally not appropriate for this extreme weather, appeared warm and dry. We also noticed he wasn't Inuit, but Caucasian. I rolled down my window and asked if he needed any help and if he was okay. He still didn't acknowledge us, just kept shuffling forward. His face was pretty blank, devoid of any thought or emotions. The other guy in my truck suggested that maybe he was in an accident and in shock. I continued rolling my truck alongside him as we trudged down the road, still trying to get his attention. 
even in this extreme cold, I could occasionally get whiffs of a peculiar smell coming off of him. He smelled acidic, if that makes sense. There was just a lot about this guy that made the hair on my neck stand up. The guy behind me in the truck's crew crab had had enough of all of this. He rolled down his window and reached out to grab the guy. He later said he was just going to try and shake him out of his stupor. Before my buddy's hand could reach him, though, this walking popsicle spun around and latched onto my buddy's outstretched arm. He glared at my buddy and then at me with this look of pure rage, not removing his hand from his arm. If emotions had a physical temperature, this guy could have melted the entire tundra that night. My buddy groaned in pain as he tried to get his arm free for Mr. Popsicle. At that moment, this guy starts screaming in our faces. There was so much hate and rage and anger in that scream. It was absolutely terrifying. I slammed on the gas and spun out on the ice for a second before the wheels caught and launched us forward. Popsicle Dude had a hold of my buddy's arm and was trying to pull him out of the truck. He was running alongside the truck while the other guys in the cab held onto my buddy to keep him inside. After several moments, if could only have been a few seconds at most, my buddy tore free from this guy and we hauled ass to the guard shack another 30 miles down the road. We checked in with the guards and reported what we had seen. The guard was looking at us like we were pulling a prank, but policy said they had to check it out regardless. My buddy's arm was sore, and when he pulled back his sleeve, there were noticeable bruises in the shape of a hand around his arm. We filed a report with the guard, and we're told to head back to our camp. None of us really wanted to talk about what happened, and it was a quiet drive the rest of the way. We flew home the next day. The second time we saw the guard at this shack, we asked him if they ever saw Mr. Popsicle out on patrols. He told us they searched up and down that ice road for a solid 12-hour shift and saw nothing not even tracks in the stove leading off the road. He told us it was a good prank and that he'd get us back for making him waste a shift driving around. But it wasn't a prank. Who would make up a story like that? And who would willingly bruise their arm for a dumb prank? We never got a satisfying answer to what happened that evening. I still wonder about that dude if he even was a dude. The Alaskan tundra is a weird place, and that was just one of my many weird stories from my time up there. 
I'll work to write down more of my experiences and share them to the appropriate people. Story number two. I used to work on the North Slope of Alaska. Here is a second story to share. It was March on the Slope. While still in the depth of Arctic winter, with the equinox approaching, the day and night cycle was becoming even more. My flight to the slope was delayed due to a large blizzard, which shut down the Dead Horse and Kapurik airstrips. I spent three days waiting in Anchorage until the storm cleared and we were able to fly. Landing at the Kapurik airstrip, it was evident the blizzard was even more severe than what we had initially thought. While whiteout blizzards are common, actually snow accumulation is not. This storm, though, was a monster. Snowdrifts several stories tall ran up against the camp housing. Our work trucks and equipment were completely covered in snow and it took a full day of digging to get them out. As soon as the trucks were free, we were off to our first job assignment. No time to rest in the oil field. Traveling anywhere after a storm this size is a nightmare. To get to the work site, we had a bulldozer escort us, breaking up any remaining drifts as we went. The dozer cleared out our work area around the well house and we began to rig up our equipment. It took little time and soon we were back to the normal humdrum life of Arctic oil well maintenance. Over the radio, we got a call from the bulldozer operator as he left that he had seen a giant black animal headed our direction. He couldn't tell if it was a wolf or a big dog, but it was massive and moving erratically. In the winter, many animals aren't active on the slope. Caribou, musk oxen, and foxes are the usual wildlife you'll encounter out in the snow. The animals keep to themselves for the most part, but you learn very quickly to never look the animals in the eyes if they approach you. This goes doubtly for the wild foxes, and I advise you to do the same. The grizzlies are hibernating. The male polar bears are hunting on the sea ice, while the females are denned up with the new cubs. Wolves aren't unheard of, but rarely leave the Brooks Range Mountains a couple hundred miles to the south. Whatever the operator saw... We would keep watch, but it wasn't our problem. It was a problem for the bear police. We went about our work, albeit cautiously. It's surprising to note that oil companies on the slope have private security officers who, besides being private law enforcement, also try to minimize encounters with wildlife. We refer to them as the Bear Police, which is a cute name for a rather dangerous part of their job. 
These security officers are the only personnel on the North Slope, outside regular law enforcement, that can carry firearms. Their primary job when encountering large predators is to harass them until they leave. This is done with beanbag guns or loud noises at first. When that fails or the animal is unusually aggressive, lethal force is needed. We had settled into our work and forgot about the wolf or dog or whatever it was. I needed to take a leak. I got out of the truck and walked behind the well house to take care of business. My crewmate came over the radio telling me to get back in the truck. There was a wolf coming out from behind the well house where I had just been and he was pacing after me. I didn't look behind me. I just ran back and jumped into the truck. I'm not taking my chances even if it was a crewmate practical joke. Once inside, I looked out, and sure enough, trotting down towards the truck was a large black male wolf. He approached our trucks and plopped down on the snow in front of us. This wolf looked rough, even by wild animal standards. The right side of his face was mutilated and deformed. Missing his right eye and most of his skin and lips on the side of his head. The wound exposed large, white teeth. Giving him the appearance of a wide, crooked smile. He didn't appear aggressive. But he didn't take his good eye off of us. That one good eye was bright red in appearance. It was eerie. The way he sat there staring, watching, waiting. We radioed the security officers for help, and like a speeding bullet, they showed up 40 minutes later. That whole time waiting, the wolf never diverted his attention from us. If I hadn't seen him breathing, I would have assumed it was a statue. The security officers arrived and took some pictures for their reports, then began the process of driving the animal back out into the tundra. Truck horns didn't startle him. He didn't even flinch. Charging him with their truck did nothing either. Then they took aim with the beanbag gun and hit him square in the ribs. The wolf let out a yelp but didn't get up or move from his spot. The next beanbag hit him in the head and that jostled him enough to get up and leave. I was able to get one decent picture of this big guy before he left the work site. Security told us to call back if we saw the wolf again. They seemed confident he would move on and not be a bother anymore. The sun was setting and our job was still hours from wrapping up. Working a 13 to 15 hour day isn't unusual. You either get used to the long hours or you find another line of work pretty quick. I was running the computer equipment inside the truck and weird data was coming back from the tools down in the well. 
They were blanking out and losing signal, or they were reporting data backwards. But diagnostics wasn't indicating any issues. To the computer systems, everything was operating normally. I tried a few different things to fix the issue, but it persisted. One of the workers went out to the wellhead to check the gauges and cables, trying to isolate the problem from there. He was outside for not more than five minutes before the night was pierced by a long, bellowing howl. This was immediately followed by the high-pitched shriek of our crewmate. Throwing the door open, I was able to catch a fleeting glimpse of a large, dark figure running behind the wellhouse. Our crewmate ran past us and jumped inside. Pale, sweating, and full of adrenaline, he tried to relay what just happened. Through his panting, he said he was in the wellhouse, checking the cables, when someone walked up behind him. Thinking it was one of us, he started a conversation with his back turned. When he got no reply, he turned and was met face to face with a seven-foot-tall black wolf standing on his hind legs. It stood between him and the door, growling. Without thinking, he flung his pipe wrench at the beast and struck him hard in the chest. That's when it let out a howl and ran off. Our crewmate was adamant this was the same wolf from earlier, because its face was mangled in that crooked, half-smile and one fiery red eye. Myself and the others on the crew had a hard time believing he saw a giant wolf-man. We had no doubt he saw a wolf, but we reasoned that in his panic he hallucinated that it was upright like a man. But we'd all encountered enough weird things on the slope to never count out the impossible. We radioed the security officers and told them the wolf had returned and waited inside the truck. What else could we do but wait? I wasn't about to go there and fight Satan's guard dog with a clipboard and a mouse pad. Every time we felt like things settled down outside, we would hear a growl or something would push against the truck. Periodically, we would see something pacing in the dark, just beyond the reach of the work lights. Even though we were inside a locked truck cabin, it was still a very vulnerable feeling. We were very much trapped. I'm sure it felt similar to what divers experience inside a shark cage far out at sea. All of this went on for an hour while we waited for someone to show up. Finally, coming up the road, we could see headlights of three approaching vehicles. The security team had showed up, this time with actual rifles. Over the radio, we told them what had been going on. We could feel their disbelief and eyes rolling through the radio. That sass and disbelief soon faded when we explored the worksite and found it covered in fresh, large wolf tracks. 
The security team split up with two trucks headed out to search for the wolf, while the last one remained with us as we loaded our equipment and finished our job. We didn't hear or see anything else that night as we cleaned up, but we sure did keep our heads on a swivel. The security officers didn't find the wolf that night. A set of tracks left off the work site and out into the open tundra. The officers commented that the tracks looked weird. This was due to them only seeing the back paw prints in the snow. The last security truck escorted us back to the main camp, while the others continued their search into the night. For the following week, various reports came in across the oil field of people seeing this mangled black wolf during the day. And at night, reports kept coming in of a black beast walking upright and harassing or cornering workers. Security seemed to always show up, minutes too late. During this time frame, many of the Alaska Native workers were getting nervous. One of our friends in the camp, Workshop, was from Nuiqsut, a small Inupiat village just west of the oil field. He told us it sounded exactly like an Iyadak a shape-shifting creature that can take the form of an arctic animal while it hunts. He said it was obvious as the wolf was a normal, albeit deformed, animal in the daylight, but transformed into an upright monster after nightfall. The Iyalak are thought to be Inuit hunters that traveled too far north and became stuck between the world of the living and the dead. They transformed into evil, deformed men with sideways mouths and eyes. They used their power of shape-shifting to hunt over Inuit, especially children. The Inupiat are weary of wild animals for this very reason. A week following our encounter, the security team was able to corner the wolf on a remote work site. It had attacked and trapped two welders in their truck. Both workers had superficial cuts through their snowsuits, but were otherwise fine. Having no other choice, the wolf was euthanized on the spot. Security shot the wolf once, and instead of dropping dead, it charged the officer that shot it. The wolf took three more high-powered rifle shots before it eventually collapsed at the feet of the officer. Even then, paralyzed in the now crimson snow, the wolf was still growling through its crooked wide smile. After several minutes, it finally succumbed to its wounds. The wolf's body was taken to the University of Alaska Fairbanks for dissection and examination. Outside of the facial deformities and gnarled appearance, the biologist concluded it was an ordinary wolf from the Brooks Range Mountains. How it got hundreds of miles from home and why it stayed on the tundra is a complete mystery.
Okefenokee Swamp Terror Part 1 The Okefenokee Swamp is located mostly in South Georgia and partially in North Florida. I'd been going there since I was a kid. My dad and uncle were avid outdoorsmen. They were always canoeing, hiking, hunting, fishing, etc., and I grew up learning to love the same things. Now, if the first thing that came to your mind when I said swamp was alligators, you would be correct, and the Okefenokee has some of the biggest around. It may sound super scary to non-Southerners, but the old saying really is true. If you leave them alone, they'll leave you alone. Canoeing slowly across the dark, tea-colored waters, if you pass too closely to one, it will quietly slink into the murky depths. He's not coming to get you. You've simply interrupted his sunbathing. As elementary school kids in South Georgia, it was quite of a rite of passage to go on the Okefenokee field trip and be led on a guided tour by Okefenokee Joe. Joe was a true outdoorsman, extremely knowledgeable, and friendly, good with the kids, and funny. A little strange, but generally regarded as a good guy. A local legend. He would get that boat closer to the big gators than my dad ever let me get. He taught us kids all about them. We even got to hear the mating call of some of the males and watch a lot of their behavior up close. He would also show us all the birds, snakes, and other wildlife. The swamp's residents were so used to Joe's boat that they didn't flee when he got close. Great memories. Anyway, fast forward to my adulthood, and I still have a great love for the outdoors. I'd recently gotten married and was successfully getting my wife and stepdaughter into kayaking, camping, and hiking. I'd broken them in fairly easily. Calm lakes and beautiful crystal clear blue spring fed Florida waterways. We'd encounter some gators, but the girls had already become comfortable with the fact that they don't want to hurt humans. I decided it was time to go out to the Okefenokee and show them my childhood swamp stomping grounds. We headed out one weekend, kind of on a whim. I hadn't called ahead to reserve a campsite because I assumed it wouldn't be that busy quite yet. Okefenokee Swamp Terror Part 2 well, I was wrong. Every tent camping site was booked. I was pretty visibly bummed, so I guess the ranger felt sorry for me. She told us to hold on. She was going to check one more thing. When she came back, she had great news. There was a primitive group site available. If you aren't familiar... These are larger sites that are usually for big groups like Boy Scouts, usually situated away from the main campground areas. They do not have electricity, 
we camp 100% primitive all the time, so this wasn't an issue for us at all. The ranger explained that this particular group site had been closed for two seasons due to the road being washed out. She said they had just fixed the road the week before, but hadn't gotten around to relisting the site as available. She offered to sell it to us for a normal fee instead of a group fee. Deal. We pay and she vaguely shows us on the map how to get to our home for the night. I remember thinking, damn, that's far as hell from the other sites. It's gonna be nice and quiet. Perfect. While at the office, we learned that that evening there was going to be a ranger-guided night paddle. This particular park inside the Okufinoki is a designated dark sky park, meaning there is very little light pollution. I was already excited about showing my family the stars in Milky Way, so getting out onto the water at night and seeing the skies that way sounded sweet. We decided to sign up for the night paddle and then headed off to find our campsite. When we got there, you could tell right away that the area hadn't been used in several years. Overgrown, spiderwebs everywhere. Teeming with the usual wildlife. I kind of prefer things this way, so I don't think twice about it. It was so far from the campgrounds in the main office area, you couldn't hear a single sound of humans or vehicles. The area was large, so I walked around a bit to find a good spot to set up. I looked back at my map to try and gauge exactly how this little island was shaped, and noticed that what I was seeing and what the map showed didn't quite line up. Whatever, I'm sure I'm just reading it wrong. We set up our camp and just enjoyed the sunshine and the sounds of nature. It was still very early spring, so the hordes of mosquitoes and various other swamp bugs weren't out in full force yet. The bugs in the swamp in the summer months could be a horror story of their own. Around 7.30 p.m., we loaded the kayaks back into my pickup and headed all the way across the park to the launch area, as our guided paddle was supposed to start at 8. Oki Finoki Swamp Terror Part 3 We approached the launch area to unload, and there was a good 15 to 20 other people going on the paddle. Led by a young, enthusiastic ranger, we all slipped off into the water with our headlamps on the red light setting. We exit the small canal we had been traveling in and emerged out into a larger river-type waterway that meandered through the swamp. As we slowly and quietly crept along, cypress trees draped with Spanish moss loomed over us on both sides with a dramatic orange and pink sunset as their backdrop. The sun finally began disappearing, and the stars started to come out. 
It was absolutely stunning and still one of my favorite kayaking memories. I'd never actually seen the Milky Way like that before. It was a new moon night, dark as could be. About a mile from our original launch, we all congregated out in the middle of the wide waterway and sat completely still and quiet. The motionless dark waters of the swamp reflected the skies like a mirror. Thousands of stars and galaxies twinkled above us and below us. It was like being in space. Shooting stars were very visible every few minutes. It really was magical. The only artificial light in the sky was the dull glow of Jacksonville, Florida on the horizon, which was about a hundred miles to our southeast. After a while... The ranger snapped all of us out of our trances. It was time to head back. When we were paddling out there, it had been dusk or twilight for most of the trip. Not much light, but enough to kind of silhouette the trees and branches against the sky and a slight glimmer on the water. By now, it was pitch black, and I do mean pitch black. The ranger told us to switch our headlamps back on to their normal white light setting so that we could all see well enough to navigate out of the swamp. As each headlamp slowly switched on and the swamp was illuminated, we were met with hundreds of glowing eyes. Hundreds, I swear to you. Now, as I said earlier, I grew up out here. Gators were nothing new or scary to me at all. However, growing up, we never really stayed out on the water past dark. We would shine our lights out over the water to look at all the eyes, but from dry land, far enough from the beasts. Now, I found myself and my little family quite literally pushing past floating gators with our kayaks. They were absolutely everywhere. All over the sides of the channel as well as blocking our way in the center. The ranger was leading and assured everyone not to worry. He paddled up towards a huge group of shining eyes ahead of us and pushed right through them. Most of the eyes just disappeared under the water but the gator directly to the ranger's path thrashed and his tail actually hit the kayak. Holy shit, you all. Sharp gasps from the group pierced the otherwise quiet southern night air. But the ranger showed zero signs of panic, which was reassuring. We all just trusted the young man that we weren't going to royally piss off these things by kayaking straight into them. As we went along, the sounds of gators were being bumped by kayaks and thrashing were heard every couple minutes. There weren't any other jarring sounds or movements, just the constant calling of frogs cicadas and the splashing of disturbed dinosaurs 
When we finally turned back into the small channel that led to the launch, there were no more glowing eyes. I'd be lying if I said I hadn't been a bit freaked out. But I can honestly say I wasn't panicking. The ranger being so cool and confident while leading the way made it pretty easy to calm down. Everyone started to relax again as we neared the launch, and we all got out, loading up our boats and one by one headed back to our camps. There was a line of red taillight traveling off toward the main campground, while my wife, daughter, and myself split off alone into the darkness towards the other side of the park where our site was. I do remember that feeling kind of... eerie. But everyone had made it through the gator gauntlet safely with no problems. Now we were laughing about it and remarking on how cool the whole experience was. We were in high spirits. No stress. We had no idea of the terror that would come later in the night. Okie Swamp Terror Part 4 We finally got back to our site around midnight and we were starving. I got a nice fire going while my wife prepped dinner. The meal finished cooking at around 1 a.m., and we finally all settled down to get comfy by the fire and eat. I hadn't taken two bites of my food when the horrifying experience began. The cicadas and frogs were singing, but you tend to drown that out into background noise because it's so constant. Suddenly, out of the calming buzz of their singing, sprung a sound that I will never forget. A low, rumbling, guttural growl. Long, deep, vibrating in our chests. We all froze and looked at each other like, Did y'all hear that shit? Not even ten seconds later, we hear it again. Yes, we all definitely freaking heard that shit. It sounded close. Really close. Like, right on the other side of the brush we were camped near. The only thing I could possibly and honestly relate it to at the time was the growling sound the T-Rex makes in Jurassic Park. I was terrified. I've been scared in the woods and the swamps. I've seen swamp gas, freaky figures, heard screams... I've been in the Marine Corps. I've encountered bears in the Appalachian Mountains. I've encountered and experienced all kinds of places. When I tell you I have never been this scared, I mean it. Pure, raw, primordial fear. I immediately told the girls to get into the cab of my pickup. They got in the truck, and I hop into the bed of the truck with my little 357 Magnum drawn. I figured being back there would get me off, off the ground and give me a little advantage over whatever was coming. I told the girls to lock the doors and open the little sliding back windows so we could communicate. 
I start frantically shining my flashlight around, aiming my gun along with it. I see absolutely nothing. We continue to hear the growling coming from one direction, not getting any softer or louder, just continuously emitting in three to five second long intervals, every 30 seconds or so. It was coming from the brush right next to our site. I shine my light all over that area, but I see nothing. Just thick palmetto leaves, underbrush and pine. No movement whatsoever. Then suddenly, we hear the sound coming from the complete opposite direction, more towards the open area of our sight. I whip around and shine my light that way, and that's when I notice the dense fog that had settled onto the entire area. It was a damp, sticky, suffocating fog. Almost right away, the growling sound was coming back from the original direction. I whip around, but immediately I hear it again, behind me again. That's when I realized there were two of them, doing a kind of call and answering each other. That's also when I realized that the other sounds of the swamp had gone silent. Nothing but the call and answer of whatever was making these absolutely gut-wrenching sounds. It got deafeningly quiet for a moment. Nothing but the heavy fog which seemed to have a silent sound of its own. My wife, with a shaky, trembling voice, told me she wanted to leave immediately and that our daughter agreed. Now, I was absolutely terrified. Do not misunderstand this. However, the thought of just leaving all of my expensive camping gear behind was somehow more offensive. Not to mention, I was getting kind of frustrated. I am at home in this damn swamp. I know all the creatures here. I'm comfortable here. It's borderline pissing me off that something out there has me so scared and confused. I start trying to rationalize what could be making the sound. Suddenly, it started back up again, and now it sounds like there could be four to five of them, all growling back and forth to each other, overlapping each other now, coming from all sides. A demonic chorus of deep, rattling, soul-sucking rumbles. Not getting any closer or further, somewhat cool by affirming that it must be animals of some kind. I wouldn't even entertain the thought of anything supernatural or cryptic. It's not that I don't believe in that stuff. I do. I was just trying not to freak out. My wife kept saying, It sounded like a big cat. And while I agreed, I knew that just wasn't it. It would have had to be massive lions or tigers to make that kind of extremely low rumbling growl. Mm, impossible. I racked my brain for the biggest animal it could be, and I just kept landing on alligator. Yes, 
We had just paddled directly through an entire swarm of them. Some of them absolutely massive. And they hadn't made a single sound the whole time we were out in the water. No, that couldn't be it. I even had a thought that the young, playful ranger had orchestrated some kind of extravagant practical joke on us poor campers out here all alone. Really and truly, I had no effing idea what it was, and not being able to even see a glimpse so I could take a shot at it to protect my family was a very helpless feeling. I really wished I had more words for how I felt. Just blindly standing in the back of that truck, hearing what I could only imagine was the scariest, evilest, most vile thing on the planet. Just knowing that they wanted to kill, eat, or otherwise mutilate myself and my family. Oki Finoki Swamp Terror the final part. It felt like an eternity, but we'd probably only been holed up in my truck for 10 to 15 minutes by now. It had finally gone quiet again, and I told the girls that we could leave, but I'm not leaving the gear. I climbed into the cab and started the truck and moved it positioning it to where I could shine the headlights onto our stuff while I packed it all up. Gun in my hand, I began rolling up the tent, gathering all of our crap and throwing it into the bed of the truck. Praying nothing crazy happened like my truck dying or some other perfectly timed cinematic horror moment. I tried to put on a confident air so as not to scare my family, but in my head... I felt so effing vulnerable. Like I was something's prey. The growling still hadn't come back, but honestly, the silence was freaking me out more than anything. And the fog, I'll never forget how oppressive that fog felt. All of our gear was sopping wet with it, and I swear it was hard to breathe the air. The fire was nothing but a smolder, despite the fact that it had been roaring and bright 20 minutes ago. Just as I was rolling up the very last sleeping bag, one final, closer-than-before growl shook me to my core. I snatched the mat up and took off running, getting into the truck Dukes of Hazard style and taking the F off. None of us looked back. I finally reviewed my footage and discovered that the sound we were hearing was the mating call of very large male alligators. The louder, lower, and scarier sounding, the more the female gator finds it attractive. Those must have been the swamp's sexiest alligators because I had never heard the sound in all my life. I had been under the impression that I knew what their mating call sounded like from my childhood, experiences in Okefenokee Joe's boat, and with my father and uncle. These gators must have been absolutely massive to produce the sounds we were hearing, because it was nothing like 
what I had ever heard in that swamp. It was exactly like that video, but I'm telling you, in person, you can physically feel it rattling your insides. Though I was somewhat comforted by the fact that the noises were just gators flirting and they weren't being aggressive towards us, my wife and daughter still think we were in danger because we were so close. I'm still not sure about that part. I got into Google Maps and tried to figure out exactly where we were camped because, from looking at the map the ranger had given us, we shouldn't have been that close to the water. I never could quite figure out where we ended up at. I don't know if it was us being in the wrong place or the fact that the area hadn't had any human activity for two years, or a combination of both that put us so close to all of this mating activity that wouldn't normally happen near areas with lots of humans. Either way, it made for a heart-pounding experience that we still talk about to this day. Also, as a small funny addition to the story, looking back, the most hilarious thing was that my daughter was eating corn on the cob at the time we heard the first sound, and it was still in her hands. So during this entire event of being terrified and hearing these growls, she had corn cob in her hand. <laughs> I hope this wasn't too long. I enjoy writing, and I just wanted to really set the tone and events of the night. I also hope my story wasn't a disappointment to the listeners here, considering the ending was a definite answer, and it was nothing really all that creepy after all. I can assure you, though, that the fear and adrenaline in the moment were very, very real. Imagine hearing that sound in the pitch black night of the Okefenokee Swamp and not knowing what it was. Looking back, I suppose the fog settling in on us in the exact moment all the growling started was just a coincidence but it sure did make the whole thing that much scarier. I will never forget the particular kind of fear I experienced that night. And that, dear listeners, is the end of these even more true Backwoods stories. If you are asleep, I hope Slumberland is treating you kindly. If you're awake, I hope you've enjoyed this collection of stories. In the meantime, I'll be reading to you soon. Have yourself a good morning, a good afternoon, or a good night.
America, we are endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu.